But now, on to Biden's speech that he also gave at the UN. Uh, so they did that uh, His Excellency thing again, but, you know, I digress. I guess it's just a feature, not a bug, uh, at least for the UN anyway. I still do not approve of them doing that when Zelensky came to Congress. But I'll digress. Biden began his speech talking about his visit, his recent visit to Vietnam, because he was there about a week ago, and how it demonstrated that, in his words, quote, history need not dictate our future. With some concerted leadership and careful effort, adversaries can become partners. Overwhelming challenges can be resolved and deep wounds can heal, end quote. And he's obviously referring to the fact that the U.S. had a, a not-so-nice history in Vietnam, courtesy of the Vietnam War. So, him visiting Hanoi, the capital of <coughs> excuse me, the capital of Vietnam, under communism, is uh, not something that would have been seen a few decades ago, uh, and also holds to my point that the Cold War was a scam. I mean, is Vietnam not communist now? No, they're still communist. Oh, okay. So, where was the domino theory? Oh, uh, Cambodia turned, and, uh, well, uh, oh, okay, so, uh, well, what's, what's the national security threat here? It, it was such a, a danger to the United States, all these countries falling into communism. Well, how's that danger manifested ever since we left Vietnam? Uh... I swear, the more you dig into American history, the more you realize that the 20th century was just the century of scams. Uh, I could get into that and shoot, maybe that, maybe that'll be anniversary episode four, <laughs> the century of scams and bringing it to a conclusion. But I haven't articulated that yet, so I'll have to wait. But yeah, Biden began his speech talking about his trip to Vietnam, overcoming uh, obstacles and learning to work with countries that you have issues with, which, you know, would be nice if he took that same principle, if we just, if we just took that same principle and applied it to all the countries he's about to lambast in this speech, <laughs> like North Korea, Iran, China, and Russia, if we could just take that same energy, imagine all that we could do. But we're not going to do that because these are just words. So anyway, <laughs> he stated that we stand at another inflection point in history and that, quote, the United States seeks a secure, more prosperous, more equitable world for all peoples. Uh, uh, huh? All peoples were? Okay, 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 okay. I, I messed up. I, I put world in there twice. Okay, so we're gonna try this again. <laughs> Uh, I had a Joe Biden moment while reading Joe Biden. I thought, wait a second, did I quote this guy too closely? <laughs> okay, so he said that, quote, the United States seeks a secure, more prosperous, more equitable world for all peoples because we know our future is bound to yours. And then he went on to repeat that, our future is bound to yours because no nation can meet the challenges of today alone, end quote. I strongly disagree. I strongly disagree. We, I mean, look at the issues of America. Because 
people really like to not look at the way that the United States can solve its own issues in favor of advocating for deeper integration and deeper dependence on the countries that they like. Because that, that's what it, it's not about independence for a lot of people. It's about being dependent on the right countries. And I'm like, well, that just completely misses all the potential of the United States. Like, it's it's insane, the potential of the United States. And it people just can't fathom it. A lot of people can't fathom it, even the America First types. Because it's a hard thing to fathom. I mean, who would have said that in 1900, the country who had a quarter of the world's landmass, a quarter of the world's population, largest navy in the world, biggest trading nation in the world, uh, the first country to industrialize, who would have said that that country was going to be surpassed by United States, a country that at that time was, what, 120-something years old? Only independent for about 117 of those years? You got you got passed up by a former colony, and now they're the biggest economy in the whole world. You have the greatest empire since Rome, the greatest empire since the Mongols, and you're... Second, playing second fiddle to this country that has a continental landmass on a not even one of the largest continents in the world. I mean, North America is like what the third largest continent in the world. Do they have all of North America? No, we should. Minus Mexico. Well, okay. Did they? They? Well, what do they have? Uh, they had. They they must have uh, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, no, they they only have about seventy four billion. Uh, million, not billion. Uh, well, how did you get past? How? Did you, who would have thought that that would ever happen in 1900? And then who would have thought that the United States would be so ridiculously far ahead of all the other combatant powers in World War II? Like it just got worse. The the ridiculous production figures. It it was comical. If you read the production figures for the United States during World War II, it's it's comical. Once you get to 1944 and 1945, it's comical. It's like, oh yeah, we just produced 8,000 tanks. Oh yeah, we we just produced a, a, a couple billion rounds of ammunition. Oh yeah, we, we just produced uh, 13 million suits, boots, and socks, and pairs of underwear. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we produced enough non-perishable food to supply the Soviet army for a, a decade or two or three. Oh, and we were supplying ourselves with food and everyone else's food. Yeah, we were, you know. Oh, yeah, and by the way, we built over a thousand combat ships and then thousands more support ships. Oh, did I mention we were late to the war? It's, it's like, it's, it's, oh, yeah, we built 300,000 uh, fighter planes on top of the, the thousands of bomber planes we built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, did, um, we built tens of thousands of trucks. Right, don't, don't, don't look at that. No, no, no. We, we built millions of trucks. It's, it's like, dude. You just you just sat there and did literally everything while doing nothing at the same time. We didn't show up until the very end. <coughs> Germany would have killed to have our productive capacity. Everyone would have killed to have our productive capacity. It was comical. But that potential is still there. That potential, which we're watching in China right now, is still there in the United States. Now, people, people think that this is some zero-sum game where if the Chinese are doing good, then the only way for everyone else to do good is if China comes down a peg and uh, if the industry goes to India, it's a good thing for the United States. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. 
it's mutual benefit. That's the name of the game. Win-win cooperation. People aren't people aren't, haven't quite caught up to that one yet. But yeah, when we look at the problems of the United States, because Biden says our future is tied to yours, and eh, not really. Like I'm, I'm in favor of having a trade deal with everyone, but to say that everyone is vital to U.S. national security is literally the idea of the crusade for democracy being taken to its logical conclusion which is that literally everyone has to be the way that we want them to be or else the world is not safe for democracy we've reached peak crusade and now it's only downhill from here as we can see from these statements and the current state of our country but when we look at the issues that america specifically has we don't really need the rest of the world to solve these i mean we don't need the world for our energy independence we just have to extract our own resources we don't need the world to secure our border we just have to enforce our border laws our immigration laws we don't need the world to give value to our currency we've chosen to do that with the petrodollar why i couldn't tell you it's corruption i suppose but we had the gold standard and the current our value of the dollar was greater before becoming the world's reserve than it was before um, then it had then has been after it the value was greater before becoming the world's reserve currency than it has been since we became the world's reserve currency in fact our the value of the dollar has only ever gone down since we uh were gearing up to become the world's reserve currency it's only gone down since 1945 and granted it was going down before that as well uh, 1900 was a, a really high point uh now granted we didn't notice too much about the devaluation of the currency because things were still cheap and easy to buy but we notice it now, we feel it now. We don't need other countries to give value to our currency if we back our currency up with real physical assets like gold. That's why they call it the gold standard. You can't print money if you can only have as many uh, dollars in circulation as you can back up with gold. Oops, now you can't have inflation. That means the value goes up every year. And we'll talk about that later on as well. So we don't need other countries to give value to our currency. We just need sound money and non-inflationary monetary policies. That's what we need. So we don't need them for energy independence. We don't need them for the border. We don't need the world for our currency. And we, we don't need them for our food. We're a massive agriculture producer. We don't need them for fresh water. We already have that. And we don't really need the world to rebuild our manufacturing sector. We just need lower regulation lower taxes, and quite frankly, cheaper costs, which can be accomplished with energy, cheap energy. And suddenly you can have an, a manufacturing boom in the United States, even with wages as high as they are. People like to go, oh, cheap labor in China. Well, name a point in time when Chinese labor hasn't been cheaper than American labor. Oops, there goes that lie. Another scam for the century of scams. Uh, the idea that it's cheap labor that costs you your job instead of your own government. But uh, I digress. I digress. The point being, we really don't need the rest of the world to solve our problems. Our problems specifically do not need the help or the interference or the intervention of other countries to solve. We are fully capable of solving them, and it's not even that that hard, quite frankly. It's just a little meticulous in some areas particularly building out the manufacturing sector again that's going to be meticulous but you can do it 
and you don't necessarily need the input of other countries. Now, you want trade deals with them so that someone's going to buy it. But America itself is a massive market. So truth be told, we really, really don't need the rest of the world for these things. So I vehemently disagree with the point that our future is somehow bound to the, the future of everyone else. Like, unless they decided to kill each other in an atomic war, then, okay, yeah, <laughs> our future is bound to you. If they got invaded by aliens, yeah, our future is bound to yours. But we're talking about a lot more down-to-earth things. So no, our in that regard, no, our future is not bound to the rest of the world. Our future is bound to the decisions of our politicians. And clearly one of them, who happens to be speaking at the UN, uh, isn't going to be a part of the solution. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's that, uh, just massive disagreement, massive point of contention, uh, but I've gotten that out of the way. So now we'll continue on with the speech because he later talked about bringing more voices to the table and expanding the, uh, the world bank, the world trade organization and the international monetary fund. And he set, specifically setting aside 25 billion for the world bank alone. Or at least he requested that out of Congress. I guess we're just throwing money around as, they, as if we have the money. Ah, we really don't. Oh, did I mention that our pensions are underfunded? See, we have the ability to solve our own problems, but clearly someone doesn't want to be a part of the solution. Uh, he would rather create unnecessary dependencies so long as those dependencies are on the right countries. And that's a major problem in american politics right now but i think we're slowly but surely going to move past that as we do with other uh forks in the road other road bumps to our development he, he talked about the coups in west africa and said that america stands with the african union and ECOWAS uh to support constitutional rule and he said quote we will not retreat from the values that make us strong we will defend democracy our best tool to meet the challenges we face around the world, end quote. So he's still backing this up. And it's interesting, uh, and I should stress that he gave this speech before the news that France was pulling out of Niger. It was, because he gave this speech like five, well, by the time you hear this, probably like six days ago. And France announced that it was leaving Niger like a day or two ago. From today, Monday. So yeah, critical context that immediately, basically immediately after he says this, France leaves. So right after he says we're committed to Ecowas and the African Union, France leaves, and it's like, well, well, which one is it? Are we, are we retreating from the values that make you strong, or, or are we abandoning democracy in Niger, or well, what's going on here? And this is another one of the problems with deriving legitimacy from foreign affairs. You cannot control foreign affairs. You have a lot more control over domestic affairs, but even then you don't necessarily have total control all the time because people are people. So it just doesn't make sense to me to stake your legitimacy on something that you have even less control over. Now, maybe these people are just egotists and they think that they have total control over everything, and they just can never fathom being wrong. Uh, but what have you, it just doesn't make sense to me to be stating your staking your legitimacy on this. And I'll get into that issue uh, when I finish his speech, because 
his speech in general seems to be doing exactly that, staking your legitimacy on something you can't control. And I'll, I'll get into that at the end of the speech. But yeah, we're, we're going to stand with democracy and it's our best tool to meet the challenges we face. Uh, basically supporting ECOWAS and African Union and unspoken, he didn't say it, but basically supporting France as well in their stance against the coup in Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, and a number of others, uh, Gabon as well. So he's come out against them openly in this UN speech. Will anything materialize? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, nothing's happened now and the bluff has already been called. The bluff has been called and France is now out. So if France is out, then what are we? We didn't go in to begin with. So are we going to get in now? I don't think so. Uh, but there might be more pressure on the U.S. to withdraw its troops from the region as well, since the French have left. So now that France is gone, the U.S. is going to take center stage in these countries. And they're going to demand that we leave too. Now that's going to be uh, on deck, so we should be prepared for that. But Biden... He then went on to talk about uh, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. And this is the, the entity that was created by the US, UK, Germany, Japan, Italy, and Canada, where they were gonna pool $600 billion, uh, a $600 billion investment fund for other countries to use as, as a counter to China's Belt and Road. And a third of that was gonna come from the United States. And then uh, 300 billion was gonna come from Germany and Italy, and then the the other 100 billion was going to come from the UK, Canada, and Japan. And it's like, well, one of these isn't like the other. One of us isn't carrying our weight here. And I, I suppose Japan is understandable because they, they have their own thing, their own infrastructure investment fund. So th they have that going on. Uh, he, he talked about that. Is it money laundering scheme? Probably. <laughs> uh, is it gonna counter the Belt and Road? Uh, not really. It's nowhere near the scale. Sh even even if we make the point that it's gonna be a starting point. Uh, Germany, the UK, and the US are all already in recession. Italy, Canada, Japan, they're, they're not gonna be too far behind. So the idea that you're gonna maintain this in the middle of a recession is ludicrous. So. Even if this were to happen, it's not going to be sustained because we're not looking at a recession. We're looking at the Great Depression, the second Great Depression. So I really don't see it sticking around. But he, he brought it up and then he talked about uh, climate change because, of course, we have to talk about climate change and changing weather patterns and natural disasters and how the world needed to meet sustainability goals, something to which uh, approximately 4 billion people left off Af between Africa, India, and China. You know, just a casual approximate of about 4 billion people just said, that's nice, but we're going to ignore you. Biden then went on to talk about the impact of the pandemic. Uh, and I should, you know, clarify that for him because people, when they say the pandemic, they're, they're really referring to the government-induced lockdowns. Uh, but yeah, you talk about the impact of the pandemic on people's lives and livelihoods and their ability to afford, you know, basic things of life. And he he stated his aim for the United States 
to continue to be the largest community donor of humanitarian assistance because he was he wasn't just referring to people in america who were struggling because of the the lockdowns he's referring to people globally who were struggling because of the lockdowns and were now struggling to make a living because of the the long-term economic impact of shutting down whole economies and so he's he then used that to pivot to say that the united states was going to remain uh let me find my point here yeah the united states was going to uh, oh yeah we're going to continue was going to continue to be the largest community donor of humanitarian assistance saying that cooperation and partnership were the keys to progress on the challenges that affect us all and the baseline for responsible global leadership. He then used that to pivot towards nuclear nonproliferation, where he basically labeled Russia, Iran, North Korea as dangerous and opposed to denuclearization. Uh, that's and with a, a heavy emphasis, a heavier emphasis on Iran and North Korea than on Russia, but Russia was included. And he even went as far as to say that, I quote, Iran must never acquire a nuclear weapon, end quote. So that's uh, that. That's the, the we hate Iran. And this is probably the context where... um that the comments from uh the saudi prince mohammed bin salman came from where they asked him if iran gets a nuke what are you going to do this is probably the, the context behind him being asked that question uh so it's like okay but if i'm not mistaken now maybe i'm just a conspiracy theorist here but i could have sworn iran was 60 days away from having a nuke i i could have sworn that that was what was happening I could have sworn when they started building those centrifuges that they were just 60 days away from building a nuke. And then about a year later, they were 60 days away again from having a nuke. So shoot, unless my math is wrong, they should have about a lot of nukes by now. So what's the holdup? Oh, they, they don't actually want to build one. So what are we talking about here? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And then you have the, the fear-mongering about North Korea. North Korea has just all of a sudden come back into the cycle. and No one was really talking about North Korea for a while after Trump went there. And then all that was laid to rest for about all of two years. And now all of a sudden, here we go talking about North Korea again. Well, two, three years, you know, a good three years of not being inundated with North Korea, the enemy, the enemy, enemy, North Korea. It was good, you know. Lots of memes came out of that visit by Trump to North Korea. But now we're back to our regularly scheduled programming of North Korea is going to launch a nuke at America at any moment. So we have to be ready to fight them. You know, that typical propaganda, another scam, another scam left over from the century of scams. But I'll, dig I'll digress. But yeah, he basically labels them as being against nuclear nonproliferation, saying Iran must never acquire a nuclear weapon. And he then said that certain institutions are sacrosanct. And this is at a, a later point in his speech. He says certain institutions are sacrosanct. Sovereignty, territorial integrity, human rights. And these are the things that he said was sacrosanct. And the foundational principles of the UN. He then goes on to speak about the war in Ukraine, where he said, 
that Russia's invasion was illegal, which is the you know the base the baseline talking point. Russia's invasion was illegal, uh, which you could say that it was. I mean, shoot, wouldn't every invasion be illegal uh, unless we run with the the story that the Ukrainians were preparing for a military offensive against the Donbass, throwing out the idea of peace. Now, granted, does that constitute a direct threat to Russia itself? Or is that a threat to the Donbass? So you could say that it's illegal. You could legitimately say that it's illegal because Ukraine was fighting a civil war, especially if Russia goes with its statements that it wasn't involved in the war and until 2022. Well, then that means that the Donbass republics were not a part of Russia. They weren't backed by Russia. So if Ukraine's gearing up for an offensive against them, then that's not a, that doesn't constitute a threat to Russia. So you coming in and taking all this territory, that would be an illegal invasion. That would be. Uh, but then there's the NATO aspect and it's like, well, Jens Stoltenberg really laid it out. Russia has no strategic, uh, they have no legitimate security concerns. And it's like, okay, well, if we're if we're just gonna sit here and say that NATO can expand wherever it wants, and NATO is an institution built to fight Russia, and you want to expand into Ukraine, well, now we have to go into Ukraine and stop you from doing that. So there, perhaps, perhaps that's the justification. We all know the justifications by now, but you can make the case that it's illegal, and you can do it honestly. But he said that Russia's invasion was illegal and that Russia alone was responsible for the war, that Russia alone stood in the way of peace, <laughs> and that Russia alone could end the war. Uh, well, these are blatant lies. Uh, and the last one is a, ha- a half-truth. Half-truth. Uh, Russia can end the war today if they wanted to. They could just leave. Uh, but we could end the war ourselves as well. So Russia would not be alone. Because we could just stop giving Ukraine money. So Russia is not alone in being able to end the war. Russia does not is not the one staying in the way of peace. Uh, no, Zelensky got exposed. Ukraine got exposed when Putin showed the whole world those draft treaties where the Ukrainians initialed them. But remember, it was us, US and UK, who came in and sabotaged the peace that the Ukrainians had almost reached with Russia. This same treaty that they went back on, they went back on that treaty because we came in offering them money and weapons to fight a war with Russia. So Russia is not the one standing in the way of peace. They came in suing for peace. They were the only ones to honor their obligations with the Minsk too. We were playing games. We And Francois Hollande and Angela Merkel... Presidents and prime ministers of France and Germany, respectively, they came out and openly said it wasn't about making peace; it was about buying time to arm Ukraine. So we we already know it was up. So the Russians, at no point in this process, have been in the way of peace. They've been the only ones honoring their obligations, and you can even see it with the grain deal. They're the only ones honoring their obligations. The West makes the agreement, doesn't honor a single word on the paper, and then throws a, a temper tantrum when the Russians realize that they're being played and walk away from the deal. And that's what happened with Minsk II, which is why Russia came in. 
And it's what happened with unofficial Minsk three, which is the almost peace treaty that they had in March of 2022 with Ukraine. We sabotaged that. And we're the ones who have come out with these conditions. The Russians say we're going to, we're open to negotiation, but it has to be no conditions, no preconditions. We have to sit down with everything on the table. And it's been us and Ukraine saying, no, Ukraine has to get what? All of its land back. And then we can have negotiations. We, at every step of the way, we've been the ones in the way of peace. So that's another lie. And then he says, Russia alone is responsible for the war. No. No one is responsible alone for the start of this war. Russia intervened in 2022. Yeah, they did. But why? But you have to remember that there was the war in the Donbass for eight years before this. And how did the war in the Donbass start? Well, we overthrew Ukraine's government. And then the Donbass seceded from Ukraine because they didn't want to go along with the puppet government. And then you got a civil war in Ukraine for eight years. The Russians were in favor of peace, and we pretended to be in favor of peace long enough to arm Ukraine for this war that we see right now. And we can see that it wasn't enough, which is why we've given billions, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine uh, to keep them in the fight. So we are more responsible for the war than Russia, but there are multiple people who are involved, France, Germany, uh, Ukraine itself. We're all involved in this. Russia has not been standing in the way of peace at any moment in this. They've been the only one in favor of peace. Everyone else has been in the way of peace, including us, with prime prime suspects in that. And Russia's not the only one who can end this war. Ukraine could ditch us and go to the Russians and say, we want a deal. We could stop giving money and weapons to Ukraine, and they have no choice but to make peace. The Russians could just leave. So at a bare minimum, that's three parties who can make peace. So this guy is just blatantly lying to the the whole world. Uh, What a wonderful look for the Western civilization to just be sitting up here lying to the entire UN General Assembly. (laughs) I I can't with these people. I, I can't with these people. But anyway, Biden, after blatantly lying in even in even more robust and bombastic way than Zelensky did, after standing there before the entire world and lying to their face with a straight face on his, uh, Biden then said, quote, if we abandon the core principles of the United States to appease an aggressor, can any member state in this body feel confident that they are protected? If we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? Biden says no. Uh... Biden says no. And then he said, quote, he said that we must, quote, stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. That's why the United States, together with our allies and partners around the world, will continue to stand with the brave people of Ukraine as they defend their sovereignty and territorial integrity and freedom, end quote. Now, that was effectively the end of his speech, although he went back and reiterated the, the foundational principles of the UN, which was very strange because it was almost uh, verbatim what he had just said prior to his statements on the war in Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, a bit jarring, but yeah. 
that was his speech. That was his speech. But I feel like uh, this speech will end up in the grand scheme of things, just like Zelensky's speech that he gave to the joint session of Congress when he came here. Actually, at the beginning of the, I almost said last year, but I, I for, almost forgot that it was this year, way, way back in what was it, February, January, when he came here. Yeah, it'll. I feel like this speech that Biden has just given to the UN will end up in the grand scheme of things looking just like Zelensky's speech that he gave to Congress. And I, I feel that way because just like in Zelensky's speech, right where he essentially staked the credibility of his war effort and of his government, of his country, on the res- the fierce and brave resistance at Bakhmut. Russia's done this, that, and the third to us, but Bakhmut has not fallen. It still stands. And then, what? One, two, three months later, Bakhmut falls? Three months? It still stands, huh? And, and they brought the flag that was signed from all those Ukrainian soldiers fighting in Bakhmut. Three months. Just three months later, Bakhmut falls. 80,000 plus deaths was, was the grand tally at the very end on the Ukrainian side alone. <clears throat> no, not, no. I said deaths. It was only 44,000 deaths. <sighs> Only 44,000 deaths, 80,000 plus casualties for on the Ukrainian side alone. And this is what you staked the credibility of your, your country on? They're, they're doing a lot of fighting around the Bakhmut area right now, but they just can't get through the Russian defenses. Now, I could have sworn Bakhmut was strategically irrelevant. So why you're attacking around there? I, I don't know. Why you're losing all these men to attack the same city that you just got pushed out of? I couldn't tell you, but I feel like just like how Zelensky staked the legitimacy of himself and of his government, of his war effort on this city that he knew was going to fall. I mean, the Russians had already made it halfway through the city when he gave the speech, Like they were fighting for the streets, (laughs) literally, it it, it was gang shit. (laughs) They were fighting street by street as he was giving that speech. And this is where you're going to stake your legitimacy on. And, and remember around that same time, just a little bit after everyone was talking about, oh, a turning point. This is going to be a turning point. Oh, yeah, it was a turning point. All right. And you went you went and turned down the drain. Because it's only been downhill from you for Ukraine ever since. It literally has only been downhill because they got like. um, Like right after Bakhmut fell. Just a few weeks after Bakhmut fell, you have the start of this this counteroffensive, and the counteroffensive has been an unmitigated disaster. It has not gotten better for Ukraine at all since Bakhmut. So yeah, it was a turning point, but a turning point down. So, in light of that, I think Biden's speech here is going to end up being much the same. That's what I think, because just like he Zelensky did that, Biden here is now essentially staking the legitimacy of the U.S. on 
handing out unlimited quantities of money to other countries because we're the the biggest community uh, donor and whatnot. What did he say? Let me. What we're gonna the U.S. will continue to be if I can find it. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the United States will continue to be the largest community donor of humanitarian assistance so that he's staking our credibility and legitimacy on hand, unlimited handouts of money, right? He's staking our legitimacy on that. He's staking our legitimacy on not abandoning Ukraine and not appeasing Russia. So that means no negotiations, no no negotiated settlement, no Ukraine giving up land for peace, land for territory, because that would be, that'd be appeasement to Russia. You'd be rewarding his aggression. So we can't do that. So it's doomed to fail. Because if we do make peace through any negotiation, well, that's appeasing Russia. If we if we do pull out of Ukraine and leave them be, or for whatever reason, an election or to try to distance ourselves from the coming collapse of Ukraine, whether we say Ukraine has to negotiate and they and we just don't give them the option not to well that's abandoning ukraine well what happened to being the guarantor of democracy i mean shoot war ukraine is not even a democracy they banned democracy they said no more elections until after the war they banned freedom you can't have religious freedom you can't be in there are no opposition parties they banned opposition parties they banned opposition media and the press they and they essentially tried to cancel the Orthodox Church. No religious freedom, no press freedom, no freedom of speech. You can't say shit about the war. Not, not, not Nothing negative. And you can't say shit about the ruling party. All opposition parties were banned. So there's no freedom and there's no democracy. But you're going to be the, you're going to stand with democracy. You're, you're the guarantor of democracies, but there's no democracy in Ukraine. There's democracy in Russia, but you're backing Ukraine. You're backing the authoritarian ruler who has banned his opposition and cracks down on his dissidents with his military. Who oppresses his people by conscripting them off the streets and sending them to the front line. Remember, remember that infamous uh, piece of info we got where you're, you're the average life expectancy of a soldier on the Ukrainian side who was sent to Bakhmut? The average life expectancy was four hours. Remember that? And here he goes, Biden, staking our legitimacy on Ukraine and essentially on a Ukrainian victory. Because not appeasing Russia, not abandoning Ukraine, that only works if Ukraine wins. Because if Ukraine loses after you've done all that, well, your, your legitimacy takes an even bigger hit. Well, okay, Ukraine had all this help and all this aid from the United States, and they still died. So what good is U.S. aid? See, all this doubling down on what do our other allies think if we, because uh, I remember when Afghanistan fell, it was, oh, what do our other allies think? What does this say to our allies? How do they know that we're going to protect them? Well, see, that's the problem. That's the problem. They're over-dependent on us protecting them. That's the problem. You're concerned about how they're going to perceive you and how they can uh, rely on you to protect them 
And in trying to double down on that, you create openings for this problem where the second you have any failure whatsoever, your legitimacy is fractured and destroyed because you went out of your way to bet your legitimacy, to stake your legitimacy on something that you didn't, ha you can't control. And Biden's doing that with Ukraine right now. Because if there's any sort of negotiated settlement, that's appeasing Russia. Okay, there goes your legitimacy. If for whatever reason we decide that Ukraine gets a, a little too uppity and they start sending drone strikes and trying to assassinate everybody and they start, you know, go full NZIG and, <laughs> and they get out of control and we say, all right, we have to distance ourselves from you. Well, now you're abandoning Ukraine. If you say that Ukraine has to negotiate it, because remember how last episode we talked about Blinken uh, didn't playing footsies with the idea of Ukraine negotiating with Russia and Ukrainians saying no, but Blinken says, oh yeah, Ukraine, Ukraine will say yes if Russia reaches out, if Russia reaches out. If at some point in the line, we grow a, a pair and say that, yeah, Ukraine, you have to negotiate. It's not a choice anymore. And Ukraine says no, well, we've now we've abandoned Ukraine. We've done the right thing by telling them to negotiate, but now you've abandoned Ukraine after staking your legitimacy to not abandoning them and to not appease Russia. And you're going to do that. There goes your legitimacy. It, And at a certain point, we're not going to be able to give money, uh, just handing out money to all these other countries. So once that pool of money dries up, because we're $32 trillion in debt, interest is almost as big as the defense budget itself at a certain point that that that's going to dry up oh now you can't give money to everybody well what what happened i thought you were here to stay i thought you were i thought america was back i thought america was back i thought we were we weren't going to abandon the these principles that make us strong well what happened oh reality set in but because we staked our legitimacy to all these things that we couldn't control we take an unnecessary hit when it's exposed that we can't control these things. Ukraine, oh, and if and in the event that Ukraine loses, and I mean big time, which is becoming more likely by the day, more likely by the day, Lavrov just said that he's perfectly fine with either. Whether it negotiated assignment, he's okay with that. And if it has to be settled on the battlefield, he'll, okay, he's perfectly fine with either. And it's looking like it's going to be settled on the battlefield. He just said that he doesn't believe it will be settled with negotiations. So if there's no negotiations and Russia just wins, which is the one possibility, the one outcome that all these experts and all these analysts just refuse to acknowledge as a possibility. The idea that Russia just wins. They, they, they'll talk about, oh, China's going to supply uh, shells and, and all this to Russia. They're going to give logistical support to Russia. Oh, North Korea is doing this for Russia. Iran is selling them drones. And it's like uh, Russia, Russia could reach out for an off-ramp over here and they, they could try to they could try to force Zelensky to the negotiating table. Uh, Putin needs an off-ramp, you know. All these, uh, all these fantastical ideas, they'll believe in literally everything else except for the one possibility that seems increasingly likely to happen that's always been on the table, which is that Russia just wins. Because if the war ends that way, where the Russians win with a sh 
straight up military victory in uh, just in, spitting in the face of all of NATO, all of the West who bet the family farm on Ukraine. Well, if Russia beat Ukraine after all of NATO went all in on Ukraine, well, what good is the rest of you? Oops, the entire legitimacy of this organization dies. And I think the Ukraine war will end up being the end of NATO because if all of NATO together can't beat Russia, well, what's the point of NATO? What's the point of NATO? If they win, the question is, what's the point of NATO? If they lose, then the question is, what's the point of NATO? And it's looking like we're going to lose. They're going to lose. And all this talk of we're going to be there, we're not going away, we're not going to abandon them, that just bounces back on you in such a massive way when you lose. And it's an unnecessary blow to U.S. legitimacy. But it's a, it's a man-made one. Because it not only does our legitimacy not have to be harmed in this way, because you just don't need to go out of your way to make these promises, but this is a problem that comes from staking your legitimacy on uh, foreign affairs in the first place. They derive legitimacy from foreign affairs. A lot of people in, in the American political sphere right now derive America's legitimacy from things that are foreign. So this or that issue over there, oh, the United States has to do this, or what, is it, what does it look like to our other allies if we don't do this? And no, 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 no. It's never about what do we do for our own people. It's never about, oh, how well are Americans doing? The legitimacy never comes from within. It always comes from without, which is why America's in the current state that it's in right now, because people are okay with decline in America so long as America looks good on the global stage, and that just can't stand for much longer. I think Biden's speech here will look very, very similar to Zelensky's speech to the joint session of Congress when all is said and done. When this war is over, Biden and Zelensky are going to be looking rather feeble as people who just were in over their heads and did not understand the forces that they were dealing with and did not understand the Russians. That's that's how his speech comes off to me. Like, I, I just can't help but have this overbearing sense of foreshadowing. Like, you're saying all these things, but... I've been paying close enough attention to the war to know that you cannot keep those promises. So this only ends one way. Russia just wins. And, uh, and yeah, it, it's doomed to fail. The war's not going to end unless they negotiate. There's not going to be some freeze to the war like they keep talking about, and we went over why that's just so... I've gone over why it's nonsense multiple times, but I, I really went all in in last episode when the, the idea of a long war came up. And so I, I, I really broke it down in last episode. So if you want to know why that's not going to happen, last the last episode I did, a long war in Ukraine. Yeah, it's just not happening. You're not going to get a ceasefire. You're going to get either a peace deal or you're not. And since we're not at war with Russia, if Russia destroys Ukraine and there's no longer a Ukraine for them to be at war with, then the war is over. So 
if they don't negotiate now, if they don't go back on everything that they said they wouldn't do, if they don't negotiate now, then it's going to be a blowout victory for Russia. Because when hundreds of thousands of trained and fully equipped men come at Ukraine from all sides, and and Ukraine has exhausted themselves militarily, strategically, uh, in terms of ammunition, economically, logistically, when they have exhausted themselves in all aspects of modern war, and the Russians come in with their second wind, it's over. It's over. They're they're going to be gobsmacked. Russia is going to absolutely gobsmack what's left of the deteriorated Ukrainian forces. And what then? All these wonderful words we gave at the UN, all those wonderful words he gave to the joint session of Congress, it fades away before reality. Reality is a bitch. But unfortunately, some people just don't want to see it. And one of those people happens to be in charge of the United States for the current the current moment in time. That'll be resolved. But alas, that's how I see a speech. A very, very overwhelming foreshadowing for what's to come. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and... Hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.